scripture with you. So if you can open your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6, is the chapter we're up to as we work our way through the book of Romans. So Romans chapter 6, and we'll read from verse uh, 1 right through to verse 23. And he starts in verse 1 with a question, and, and what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin, as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. And then notice verse 15, we're halfway through, or a bit over halfway. Verse 15 almost repeats the same structure and we start with a similar question. And it says, what shall we say then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that, you, that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So that is the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. (coughs) Sorry. And we have, this morning we're going to look at six points that are going to help us know, help us understand things, help us know and help us live the Christian life. And so the the first point 
is just some context, just to give us some idea of this passage, where we sit, and some, uh, some of the, the subjects that are, that are going to be covered. But verse 1 by, began by saying, what shall we say then? And we immediately think, what, what shall we say to what? And so it takes our mind back to what we've seen in chapter 5, where the, where the subject was corporate solidarity. That was the concept where the, the actions of the one are applied to the many. And in particular, we saw that Adam and Christ functioned in this way. They were representative heads. And when Adam sinned, all of mankind sinned in him. And we were all counted guilty and condemned because of what Adam did. Um, but through faith, we saw that we, we become united to Christ and he became our representative head, and his perfect life and righteousness is imputed to us, so he now represents us. And when we looked at the, the doctrine of justification, we also saw that there were two types of righteousness. Do you remember that? We, we talked about the imputed righteousness, the righteousness that's given to us, and we talked about the inherent righteousness, which is our actually being good, being righteous. Um, and so we had those two types of righteousness. And the first five chapters of Romans that we've been through, they, they were concerned with imputed righteousness, that they've been given the righteousness of Christ as a gift. And they spoke of our position in relation to God's law. And so the gavel has come down. We've legally been declared. We've been declared to be just. Um, and that, that's the doctrine of justification. But the gospel doesn't stop there. As, as many Christians attempted to do. We just want to get justified and that's it. The, the, the biblical uh, gospel goes further. And so as we come to chapter 6, Paul starts to consider the second type of righteousness, that inherent righteousness, where we're actually starting to become more holy ourselves. And so we stop thinking of our position and we start thinking in terms of our practice, how we're living our Christian life. And so the biblical terms for this are the, that we've gone from the doctrine of justification and we're starting to transition into the doctrine of sanctification. That's, that's where we're, we're sitting. And so our union with Christ, that's, that's the fact that we've been joined to him through faith, helps us understand both of these important doctrines. And, and think with me as we think about Adam. Not only was Adam's guilt and condemnation. Not only had that been imputed to mankind, that, so that's his guilty status. Adam sinned and his guilt gets transferred to us. Not only has that happened, but also we know and we feel that his corrupt nature has, has somehow been passed on to all of mankind as well. And so there's a double problem that the gospel is solving, uh, both the guilt and the actual sin that's in us, our sinful nature. And so far, the doctrine of justification has answered the first problem. It's, it's answered our guilt and our, st and our status. But now in chapter 6, we start turning our minds to the second problem, which is how, is our, how can our sinful nature be restored? Uh, how can we make ourselves stop sinning? That's the questions that we start uh, thinking about as we, as we come to the sixth chapter. But as we, as we go through this chapter, there's another truth uh, that's woven through the, the passage. And it's, it's a truth that, uh, for many of us, it confronts us. Um, because for many people, including, including many Christians, we've built up a framework of thinking in our minds that's based on this idea and this concept of free will. That's how we understand the world. We have this concept of free will. And when we come to this text, 
which expresses God's way of thinking, it, it, it confronts us because it says, no, before you were united to Christ, you were not free at all. In fact, you were a slave of sin. You were enslaved to sin. That, that's the words that this passage uses to describe those before they come to Christ. They were enslaved to sin. And so this chapter will bring these ideas to the surface, and it's going to give us some much-needed clarity on, on quite a difficult subject. But that's the context. Uh, it's talking about our sanctification, and we're going to see this thread of an idea about our enslaved will coming through the text as well. But my second point, and before we jump right into the text, is to take a, a historical excursus. So we're going to go the scenic route and uh, have a look at church history for a little bit and just see something of how this concept of free will has been handled in church history. And so throughout church history, uh, and some of the men have heard this second point, um, but I think it's important for everybody to hear, but throughout church history, the idea of free will has been a weed. Uh, so it's like convolvulus. I found some of that in my garden, and it, it's, it's still there. But, but it's been constantly pulled out. But no matter how many times you think you've got rid of it, it keeps growing back and strangling the truth. And it keeps coming back because the unregenerate soil of natural man provides the perfect growing conditions. And so the subject of the freedom of the will, uh, it involves some of the most difficult problems with which the human intellect has ever attempted to grapple. How can, and think with me this, how can the idea of a sovereign God that providentially governs the actions of the men, how can that God be reconciled with the notion that mankind is responsible for his actions? These are the questions which produce the sharp encounter of keen and conflicting wits between, have you heard of these people, Pelagius and Augustine. And so this was early in the 5th century. And John Owen writes of Pelagius and, and of his idol free will. He writes that by the ancient fathers he was exploded and cursed out of the church. And so what had happened was Pelagian, Pelagianism, with its foundational idea of free will, was, was kicked out of the church. And so you, that's, and we can see that in the Council of Carthage, which was in 418, and at Ephesus in 431. But towards moving through church history again, towards the middle of the 9th century, there was a man called, and I can't pronounce his name, Gottschalk. Gottschalk. It's like worse than a Hebrew pronunciation. But he was born in 868. He advocated the doctrines of Augustine as well, and council warred with council, and he eventually died in prison. So he, he upheld these same views, but he eventually died in prison due to a lack in the rights of private judgment and free inquiry in a dark age. And as I read that again this week, I thought, man, it's, it's, that a, a dark age is marked by a lack of the rights of private judgment and free inquiry, which is an interesting thought. But they, they simply weren't allowed to have a different opinion. But the next significant revival of the same dispute arose at the time of the Reformation in the 16th century. And so John Owen continues and he says, The shackles of medieval ignorance were burst asunder by the awakening intelligence in Europe. And so the, the Reformation whipped up a frenzy of of thought that they could engage and think freely again. And if we accept the controversy between Protestantism and popery on which the Reformation hinged, no point could more naturally engage the mind in the infancy of its freedom than the compatibility of the divine purpose, that's the sovereignty of God, with human responsibility. 
on the solution of which problem the nature of redemption seemed to depend, and around which, by the spell of the mystery attaching to it, human speculation in all ages has revolved. But now a measure of intellectual freedom had been acquired, and the dispute was between, on the one hand, free will, and, and on the other was efficacious grace. That was the two competing views that, that always run through this thread of church history. And I want you to see that Rome was on the side of free will, and that the Protestants were on the side and stood on the side of efficacious grace. And so this idea of free will was the root subject that divided the two. Um, and one man that was particularly central to the Reformation, and you'll know who I'm talking about, Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote a famous book, and it was called The Bondage of the Will. And that literally means the unfree will. He took the exact opposite opinion. Uh, and it was a response to a book by a man called Erasmus who wrote On Free Will. So they were on each of the side of this argument. But sometimes we speak of the five solas at the heart of the, as the heart of the Reformation teaching. And that's right to a certain degree. But to help you see the significance of the subject of free will, I want you to know that none other than Martin Luther saw this subject of free will as the spring from which the solas flowed. Um, it was a more antecedent idea. And so you can't get to the doctrines that those solas are the uh, the doctrines of grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Um, and w- you can't get to those truths without building them up upon the foundation of a bound will. Uh, you alone, he tells Erasmus, and I'll quote from, there's a famous uh, preface at the beginning of uh, this book, The Bondage of the Will. It was written by J.I. Packer, who's recently passed away. He says, you alone, he tells Erasmus, have attacked the real thing. That is the essential issue. You have not worried me with those extraneous issues about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and such like trifles rather than issues in respect of uh, all to which have sought my blood. But you and you alone have seen the hinge the hinge on which all turns and aimed for the vital spot. And so free will was no academic question to Luther. The whole gospel of the grace of God he held was bound up with it and stood or fell according to the way one decided it. He says it's not the part of a true theologian, Luther holds, to be unconcerned or to pretend to be unconcerned when the gospel is in danger. This is the explanation of what Warfield, this is B.B. Warfield, calls the amazing vigor of Luther's language. And this book was just a torrent of an argument for the gospel truth. And this is the amazing vigor of Luther's language. The gospel of God is in jeopardy. The springs of Luther's religion are touched. And the man is moved. The volcano erupts. And arguments just pour out of him white hot. And so Luther knew that the doctrine of the bondage of the will in particular was the cornerstone of the gospel and the very foundation of faith. He even goes so far as to say that the man who is not yet, listen to this, the man or the person who is not yet practically and experimentally learned the bondage of his will and sin has not yet comprehended any part of the gospel. For this is the hinge on which all turns, the ground on which the gospel rests. And so Luther, he had this example of a cannonball, you know, a big, thick lump of metal. And he says, if you hold it out the window, that cannonball is free. It's free to fall up and it's free to fall down. But every time you let it go, it just falls down. 
And he's saying when you, take a, when you take a sinner, someone with a sinful nature, and you let them loose in the world, they could sin or they could obey and worship God, but every time they sin because they've got that sinful nature. There's a property in us that's corrupted by Adam that determines that we're bound to this course of action, just like that cannonball. Uh, and so the Roman Catholics in Erasmus argued for free will, and the Protestants understood our wills to be in bondage of sin. And so I say that because I remember bumping into this idea a number of years back and thinking, I think I might be on the wrong team. But you know, this is, this is literally one of the core things between the, the Protestant faith and the Catholic faith is the subject of free will. But if we move on in church history to 1642, there's a man by the name of John Owen he published his first book that quickly brought him into prominence as a, as a gifted young theologian. And his book was called A Display of Arminianism. And so Arminianism is a, a softer version of Pelagianism. And the subtitle was A Discovery of the Old Pelagian Idol Free Will with the New Goddess Contingency, Advancing Themselves Onto the Throne of the God of Heaven to the prejudice of his grace, that's to the destruction of his grace, his providence, and supreme dominion over the children of men, where in the main errors by which they have fallen off from the received doctrine of all the Reformed churches, with their opposition in divers particulars to the doctrine established in the Church of England, are discovered and laid open out of their own writings and confessions and confuted by the Word of God. That was a Puritan title to a book. They knew how to title a book properly. But it was a passionate plea to those in his day to pull back the weeds that had, again, clouded the gospel. And to do this, he chose to attack a very specific doctrine. He chose to attack the idol of free will. And looking back to the time of Reformation, this is Owen still, he writes, But in the beginning of the Reformation, that fatal time for idolatry and superstition, together with the abbeys and monasteries, he says, the zeal and learning of our forefathers with the help of God's word, which is the emphasis there, demolished this temp temple and broke this building down to the ground. In the rubbish whereof we well hoped the idol himself had been so deeply buried as that his head should never more have been exalted to trouble the church of God. So they hoped the Reformation had dead and buried this idol of free will. And then he goes on and says, until not long since. Some curious wits, whose weak stomachs were clogged with mana and loathed the sincere milk of the world, word, and I love this, this is a word picture, raking all dunghills for novelties, lighted unhappily upon this idol, and presently, with no less joy than did the mathematician at the discovery of a new geometrical proportion, exclaim, we found it, we found it. And without further ado, up they erected a shrine and, and until this day continue offering praise and thanks for all the good that they do to this work of their own hands. And so that's what an idol was. It was something made by the hands of men. And so we, we, he saw the doctrine of free will as nothing but a blasphemous idol setting itself up in opposition to the God of heaven. His opinion was shared by the Puritans. And our heritage of sound evangelical theology comes down to us via those that have always opposed this teaching. And so that's it's quite a hard subject to get, isn't it? Because we, we think free will. Well, I mean, I will this, I will that. Uh, what on earth am I talking about? But listen, from Calvin to William Perkins, Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, we have Burkhoff, 
uh, Bavink and Boyce, all, all these, this chain of men through church history, faithful Bible teachers, have all upheld the bondage of our will and sin. That's, that's the faithful line of Christianity. And, but last in our quick trip through church history, there's a man uh, that was recognized as the last of the Puritans. His name's Jonathan Edwards. And in 1757, he wrote a monumental book. So much like Luther's, um, a few hundred years later, his was called The Freedom of the Will. And again, its subject was free will. <coughs> and R.C. Sproul, who many of you know from, he just died a few years back, R.C. Sproul, whose opinion is significant in our own day, he said, I believe this is the most important theological work ever published in America. That's, that's a book on the subject of free will, and that's a huge statement by a significant uh, Christian theologian. So we are dealing with something this morning that's re- it's just really important. It's, it's, not, it's not something we're just throwing ideas at loosely. This is a really important truth that will come through uh, the sixth chapter in the book of Romans. But that's just a tiny glimpse of the argument from church history and, and I, I do that to show you that in challenging this idol of free will, which is so common and so pervasive that we just assume it to be true, that it's a very Christian thing to do. I'm arguing a very Christian argument. But ultimately, ultimately, I want you to see this truth in the Word of God. And so let's turn back there. So we've finished our little... Uh, little excursus through church history, but we're up to our third point. And our third point, we look back at our text and we're starting to look at a question. And so you can see this in verse 1. This is the question that Paul answers in this text. He says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And if you look, look at verse 15 too, I pointed this out as we read it, there's a similar question. It says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace. And he says the same thing, by no means. <coughs> and so we have, we have two almost identical questions that, that break the chapter in two. We've got verse 1 to 15 and verse 16 to 23. They both start with this question. And not only this, but as, as you go down from each question, uh, they have a body of truth, which is Paul wants us to know something, so he gives us an indicative, a section of indicative teaching, and then he gives us some commands where he's wanting us to do something. He's commanding us to live a certain way, and then he finishes again under each section with some more indicatives to tell us something true about ourselves. He wants us again to know something. And so what we have in this section, within these two sections, is a question, and we have two indicative sandwiches, kind of like a compliment sandwich. You know when you want to say some negative feedback to someone and you sandwich it between two nice things? This is an indicative sandwich, but there's two of them. And for the sake of getting through this whole chapter in, in, in one go, what, what I'm going to do to make the structure easy is I'm going to pull them all together. And so we're just going to go through all this indicative teaching, uh, see the commands, and then we'll see the, the truth and the knowledge again. That's, so that's how I've structured it. So we can just work through really easy and, and follow Paul's line of thinking because I think that's how, he, that's how it works. So there's those two questions. Um, <clears throat> So, so each half of the passage, verse 1, verse 15, um, starts with this question. And, and his questions essentially say this. They say, okay, so we've been justified by faith. Uh, we've been given the imputed righteousness of Christ. But what now? 
Uh, can we just keep on sinning? Because all our sins forgiven. Uh, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. Uh, surely we can just keep on sinning and, and, and we're good. We've been given this perfect status before God, the imputed righteousness of Christ. So that's the question. And the answer in both cases, and you know this, is an emphatic no. This is, this is not at all how Christianity works. We're not justified by faith and then just live a life that's just free to sin. That's not at all what happens. And so verse 2, it starts to explain why. It says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's his argument. How can we who died to sin still live in, live in it? And here he starts with the first section of his indicative teaching, uh, which is our fourth point. <coughs> and don't be deceived, the, the fourth point's a long one, so we're not... Uh, thanks, brother. Um, so we start to see his indicative teaching, and he wants us to know that we have died to sin, and he wants us to know that we've come alive to righteousness. And so you can see this starting to unfold in verse 3 to 10, and then that parallel section that I talked about is in verse 16 to 19, and I'll just weave them together to get a feel for it. So the first thing that he wants us to know is in verse 3. It says, do you not know? See how smart I am? That's where I get it from. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And now he says we were, we were baptized into Christ. And that's not speaking of our water baptism, of what we do when someone's baptized. It's speaking of what is pictured in a water baptism. So it's speaking of our union with Christ, our being baptized into him. And further he says, we are united to his death and resurrection. But you're sort of a little puzzled at the moment. You're like, well, what does it mean? What does it mean to be baptized into his death and resurrection? Well, in verse 2, he's just said that we died, so our death, we died to sin. That was our death. And in verse 4, he speaks of our rising from the dead in order that we may walk in newness of life. That's the life that he's talking. That's the resurrection he's talking about, sin and living, uh, 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 walking in newness of life. And that's the first thing he wants us to know. You have, for the believer who's trusted Christ, you have been united to Christ, you have died to sin, and you have risen to walk in newness of life. That's the first thing. And these are like steps as they build up and they get better and better. The second thing to know is in verse 6 and 7. And he explains more about our death. <clears throat> he says, we know, there it is again, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, which might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And here we see that our old self, is the, what the verse says, our old self was crucified, and that means our old sinful nature, that corrupt, polluted thing that we inherited from Adam, that old self was crucified, and, it, and our sinful nature has died. It even says that it's been brought to nothing. That old self has been brought to nothing. But it doesn't stop there. He goes further. He describes our death to sin 
as being, and this is where we get that idea threading through, our death to sin as being no longer enslaved to sin. He says we've been set free from sin. (coughs) And so you say, well, what does that mean? What's enslaved to sin? What's set free from sin? What does that mean? And it means, if you think about it, we were once slaves of sin. And we were once in bondage to sin. That's a necessary inference that we can draw from that text. These are the biblical realities that stand in stark contrast to that notion of free will. We were once slaves. We were once in bondage. And if you're really honest, that doesn't sound like a description of a free person, does it? I could put it this way. Imagine someone who's free. So someone's standing there and they're saying, I've got a free will. And you're like, great. Imagine someone comes to the, with the gospel to that person with free will. And it says, the gospel can set you free. And that person with free will sits there and goes, well, I'm already free. Well, the, what's the gospel? Well, I mean, I'm already free. What are, you, what are you telling me this? And so what we find is, and I really do, I hope you can start to understand what I'm getting at here. I'm not, I'm not mad. Um, but this, this idea of free will has just nullified the gospel and it's made it impotent. It's made the gospel a cure for a disease that doesn't even exist. And so you could say the same thing like this. If you think much of your free will, you will think little of being set free. And when you think little of being set free, you think little of what God's done for you. You have a, a, a little pool of worship from which you can draw from. But as good Bereans, we keep moving through this text and we, we take God at his word And we believe that we were once enslaved to sin. That's what the word of God says. And so the third thing to know, we'll move on to the third thing, is in verse 8 to 10. And he explains some more about our new life. He says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. He says, we know, another thing to know, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The parallel is that our sinful nature no longer has dominion over us. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And from this we see that because of our union with Christ, and everything I'm talking about in this passage is drawn from our union with Christ, Um, not only has our old nature died with him, but just as he was resurrected to life, we are resurrected to newness of life, which means our new nature has come alive. So our, and think about this as well, our relationship to, to Christ and to God is not just a conceptual or spiritual reality uh, that floats around in the religious clouds. There's a tangible, substantive, ontological change that, that takes place in our, in our actual being. And the same power that was in Christ and raised him from the dead, think of that power, is the same power that runs through the veins of our souls and causes us to walk in newness of life. This is exactly what Ephesians 1, 19 to 20 teaches. And so over there, the same author, Paul, he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? And he says it's the same thing as the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. 
That's the power that's alive inside uh, our new nature. And so we know this truth as well. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's become nothing. And behold, the new has come. This is the truth that we're starting to see here. It's a tangible change in the life and being of a person when they come into union with Christ. Now that the last thing that Paul wants us know, uh, to know, sorry, uh, the last thing about our union with Christ is in verse 16 to 19. So it's merging that, that other section of the same, same idea. And he, he takes the idea up another level. <clears throat> verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? And verse 17, verse 17 and 18 are like the, the heart of this chapter. But thanks be to God. It's another one of those great buts in the Bible. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. That's what we've become. And, and he says in verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. And here we start to see the fullest expression. He's been slowly explaining what he's saying. But here we start to see the fullest of expression of what he's trying to explain to us. And when he says, I'm, I'm speaking in human terms, uh, his mind's just grappling with these ideas. And it, it's like he's trying to take this incredible truth down from heaven that he can see. And he, and he wants to, he's trying to he take something that's unspeakably glorious that he can't find the right words to. And he's trying to bring it down and accommodate it to our language and somehow explain this, this principle to us in a way we can understand it. But in verse 17, it unlocks his thinking and he says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. And I emphasize that word, from the heart. And this is, this is where we start touching on something important. That word heart, that single word makes all the difference in the world. Because it helps us to understand what type of slavery am I talking about. How, how is it that we were enslaved to sin? So what type of slavery? In verse 12, it helps us as well. It says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. And it says, To make you obey its passions. Did you sense that? That's the way that's... That's the way. So this is a slavery to our passions and desires that comes from our heart. So this is not an external slavery where someone else is making us do things that we don't want to do. This is an internal slavery that we're completely responsible for, that we're culpable for our own actions. It's a, it's a slavery that we, we have caused in our own hearts. And so it's a slavery of our hearts. And, and think with me as well. What, what do our hearts do? How do they work? They will things. Do you catch that? Our hearts will things. They desire things. They, they want things. They, they crave things. That's how our heart works. And so in the Bible, our will, our will is not at all free. The biblical perspective is that our will, 
Our desire is tied, it's anchored to our hearts. That's the biblical picture. And we need to start using biblical terms to start understanding who we are and how, and how our wills and desires are working. And so, and think with me as well, how does the Bible describe the condition of the human heart? Does it say it's free? Does it say it's neutral? Um, does it say it's healthy? And so the condition of the heart in our Bible, Jeremiah 17 verse 9, you know these. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So we have this heart before coming to Christ that is desperately sick. And that's the source of our will. That's the source of our desires. Genesis 6 5 says every, and this is speaking about mankind prior to the flood, and it, and it reinforces it just after the flood as well. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And I love Luther. He says, I translate that verse, all the thoughts and the intentions of his heart was only evil all the time. But to make this easy to understand, as easy as possible, I can give you one word to understand our hearts. <coughs> Excuse me. One word to understand this concept. And you can understand it by this. We are, before coming to Christ, we are addicted. That's the word addicted to sin that's who we are that's our sinful nature addicted to sin and the cambridge dictionary defines addiction as an inability to stop doing something and so that's that's the condition of the unregenerate heart this is the the to put it in a different way if you'd understand this is the young man that drifts away from church into a sinful relationship and he can't pull himself away from his lover the lust of his heart is as strong and immovable as the bars of a castle. Or this is the bitter and offended person who cannot bring themselves to forgive their neighbor. His rooted strong pride and stubbornness have perfect power over him. Do you feel how our heart works? This is the miserable person who lives their life as a perpetual victim, whose unyielding pride will never stop deflecting blame to other people and humble themselves to accept the consequences and responsibilities for their own failings. That's, that's how our heart can bind us. It can trap us. It enslaves us. But, but whatever way we cut it, whether it's pornography or pride, jealousy or greed, before we were united to Christ, we were slaves of sin. We were bound by the passions of our sinful hearts. And you could sum it up like this and say, we were not willing to come to God. Our will that we boast of as being free is the very thing that is wrong with us. We were not willing to come to God. You know, one of my favorite verses is Psalm 110 verse 3. And, and Spurgeon and Whitfield used to use this verse. And, they, and it speaks of when God will make his people willing in the day of his power. Isn't that an incredible thing? That God will make you willing in the day of my power. Psalm 110 verse 3. But if you look back at verse 17, it says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. It's not what we are now. You who were have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. This is the standard of teaching here. Which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become 
So we've become something else. We're not slaves anymore. We have become slaves of righteousness. So we didn't have free will beforehand, and then we get born again. We get a regenerated nature, and we don't have a free will afterwards. We're still slaves. And I think Matthew read a passage just before, and I think it was Revelation 22, might have been verse 6, and it still pictures us in heaven, the bond servants, the slaves, doulos, worshipping God in heaven, where we've been slaves in the past, but it was to sin, but now we've become slaves of Christ, and we'll continue to be slaves because our hearts will be addicted to something else. But this, but this, this thing here, this, this little bit, we have become slaves of righteousness. This is the, really the climax of, of what Paul wants us to know. Uh, it's, as if he's, it's as if he's showed us we were slaves of sin only as a point of comparison to be then able to show us, so he can compare us to that, to show us what we are in Christ that we are slaves uh, of righteousness. And you could say, yeah, you could say it as simply as this with that same one word, we have become addicted to Christ. That's who we are now. There's, there's a holy uh, addiction that we have when God changes our nature, when he makes us willing in the day of his power. And so our sanctification is driven by a righteous addiction. That's, that's how I, I'd love you to understand how is it that we live out the Christian life and we live it from the heart. It's not just external rules and commands and being told to do things. God changes us and we happily uh, serve him. So if you imagine with me uh, your heart as a magnet, which is I think the best way I can accept because it desires, it wills, it craves things. And you imagine there's little bars of sin, like little reinforcing bars. They're all sin. And you're, you're, where, where's your heart going to go? It's going to go... And it's just going to collect all these metal bars of sin. Um, but if you imagine, this, when we're born again, what happens is imagine this great heavy metal object, this great massive metal, the glory of Christ comes down from heaven, huge. And I love in the Old Testament that word glory has to do with weight. But anyway, this great metal object comes down. What, what's this magnet? What's your heart going to do? There's all this sin, these little bars of sin, but it's just going to be overpowered. It's just going to be attracted to something new, and it's going to be fixed there. It's going to be enslaved there. That's what happens to us, and we don't really know when we're, we're like, what, what did God do to us when we came to faith? But there was, this is God taking out our old heart, putting in a new one, and causing us to walk in his ways. He makes us willing. And so, the, yeah, anyway... But that's, that is the miracle of regeneration. That's the new nature. Uh, that's what happens in the heart of the believer when they behold the glory of Christ and the great things that he's done for us in the gospel. And so this, that principle, that becomes the reigning force. So sin no longer has dominion. Now, now this becomes the reigning force in our heart and in our life. So this affection, this is going to suddenly drive our actions because our hearts are uh, pulled to Christ and our feet just naturally go. Does that make sense? We're, we're, our action will follow afterwards. So that's the reigning force. But <coughs> And so instead of, instead of our old life of just lining up sin and just collecting it, drinking iniquity down like water, like it says in the Bible... Instead of pursuing sin, the regenerate person lines up the means of grace. 
And so we crave the scriptures. We love to hear the preaching of God's word. We love to pray. We love to fellowship and serve God's people. We daydream about how we can serve the Lord and how we can make him known to other people. Sorry, and we don't do these things because we have to. We don't do them because we're commanded to. We do them because we want to. That makes all the difference. And these are the things that pull our magnet, as it were. They drive our new life. But that, what we've just been through there, that's the, that's the body of indicative teaching, the, the, the truth that Paul wants us to know. So the, the, the subject is on sanctification, how we live our Christian life. And you might have thought he would have jumped straight into telling us what to do. But he stops us and he goes, I want you to know this about yourself. And in verse 11, he starts to command us. So he does start to get to some commands. Um, and he says in verse 11, if you look there, he says the first command, it's not really a command at all. He's just reinforcing what he's teaching. But he says, you must, that's the command, but you must consider yourselves. So it's not even a doing. He's going saying, all that stuff I've just taught you about your old nature dying and your new nature being alive, Look at those truths. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, united to Christ Jesus. And so Paul transitions into, into giving us these commands, and as we do that, we transition into the fifth point, which is, which is the imperatives. In verse 12, it says, Don't let sin therefore reign in your mortal body. He's saying, don't. Let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. And with that, he has, he's finally arrived really at this doctrine of sanctification. He's saying, this is how you should live. Don't let sin reign. Don't let it have dominion. And in verse 13, there's two more commands. The first one is verse 13. Do not present your members, that's the parts of your body, your arms, your legs, all the different parts of your body, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. And the next command is, but present yourselves and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And I think there's a whole, there's a whole sermon in, in those two verses. But with that, we have an image of our minds, of our bodies, either being a weapon of sin or a weapon of righteousness in the hand of God. And what Paul has argued is that if we have been united to Christ by faith, we actually have become weapons of righteousness. We've become slaves of righteousness. We are we are these instruments in the Redeemer's hands, as it were. But I want you to know that, that Paul is, I want you to see how Paul is trying to motivate us to live our Christian life. And so I was trying to think of a way to explain this. And I remember playing rugby at school when I was younger at college. And we had this winger in our team. And so, like, you'd want to give your winger a command. You want him to score tries. So imagine the command is saying, uh, score a try. That's what you want the winger to do. And, and how do we make this happen? Uh, well, the thing is, we, we told him some truth about himself, 
and then we told him to score a try, and then we, we encouraged him again with some truth about himself. And so what we did, we came up with this plan where we had, when we had a play on the one side of the field, so we have a line out, and we have our back line spread out, but instead of spreading out the whole width of the field, we pulled them in tight. So the winger was at halfway. We still had heaps of space out there on the, on the side. And when we pulled our back line in tight, all the, the marking players, they all pulled in tight as well to mark up. So there's half the field free of space. We said, we said we're going to set up the field. We're going to get you the ball, and, and you have to score a try. But the thing we told him, the truth we told him about himself, was we said, you have got faster wheels than the winger that's marking you. We want you to know that about yourself. You can simply run faster than the other guy. So we're going to get the ball in your hand, and I want, I'm going to command you to score a try, but just know that about yourself. You're faster than him. And so the ball got passed out, a couple of skip passes, and the ball's right in his hand. And what do you, what do you tell him to do? You just say, run. And he, he's got all half the field to run outside his man, and he did. And he just burned him and scored a try in the corner. And so that's, that's a, I mean, that's a simple schoolboy rugby when, you, when you're not that good. But... <laughs> But he was just simply faster. But, but that's, what, that's what exactly what Paul's doing in the sixth chapter. He's telling us something true about our new nature in Christ. He says, I want you to know something about yourself and the resources that you have in Christ. You know, now that you're in me and he's in us, that's an incredible thing, that he dwells in us. Just, just stop and contemplate. Make sure you know these things about yourself and he's loading us up like, like we loaded up that winger to know something before he sets us free to run the Christian life. That's how Paul's thinking through uh, the doctrine of sanctification. That's, he's not whipping us with commands. He's, he's showing us a whole, different, it's a whole different method. But my final point, and this, this is, that's what I said, those two sandwiches, the, there's the body of truth, there's the commands that we've just seen, and then he just encourages us again. So it's like he says... To that winger, he's like, you know, you, you can run faster, score the try. And he goes, you know you can run faster, don't forget. That's, that's how Paul's kind of packaged the chapter. So this last bit is a, is a last word of encouragement, and it's before we move on to chapters 7 and 8 and, and weeks to come, where we'll continue to look at how Christians live. So 7 and 8, we'll still be talking about the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, but in verse 14, it says, he says, remember what I've told you. And he gives him this, this little bit of encouragement. Sin will have no dominion over you. Just remember that. Sin has no dominion over you. And in verse 22, which is at the end of the passage, it says this. But now that you've been, so it's like he's saying, remember this as well. That you have been set free from sin and you have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. And so yeah, with that, we really have just scratched the surface and started to look at what Paul explains about sanctification. He hasn't whipped us with a list of commands and things to do. He's not loading us up to be legalists. He's building us up in the knowledge of who we are in Christ, and he's letting us know what the mighty power is that is at work in those who believe and when we've, when we've been fully trained and ready, he's going to keep teaching us. But when we're fully trained and ready, you know, we'll go through chapter 7 and 8. We'll, we'll take a little detour through 9, 10, and 11 and look what's happening with Israel. But he'll get to chapter 12. And then he starts finally, after all this body of teaching telling us who we are, 
Then he finally, as it were, lets us go. And if you imagine, it's almost, it's almost like when you watch those horses when they're, they're ready to race. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're hidden behind the gate and they're all like noses pushing against it. And then when we get to chapter 12, he's going to open the gate and he's, we're going to have these hearts that are enslaved to God, full of this knowledge of who we are in Christ. And then he's going to let us go and we'll be able to, we'll be able to act. But he, he gets us there so slowly. And I think sometimes we're too quick to just put commands on people, but we don't do the work to train ourselves properly. So that's uh, an introduction, I guess, to the, to the biblical doctrine of sanctification in Romans chapter 6. Um, so we, if we summarize the whole thing, we, we must consider ourselves, this is the truth, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, and then we have those commands in our head, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. And then he, he just encourages us again, like who we are. Um, sin does not have dominion over you. But let's bow our heads and pray. <coughs> Excuse me. Heavenly Father, we, we think of those lyrics in the hymn, that you break the power of cancelled sin, that our uh, in our justification, our sin was cancelled, but in Romans chapter 6, you tell us that you have broken the power of that sin. And we, we pray that there would be not a single person here today that uh, you have not made willing and able to obey you. We pray that you would cause people to be born again, and we pray that you'd strengthen uh, your people to live for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. this um, would normally interrupt all this sorry <laughs> there's two-thirds of the church family as we know out in the other buildings and when we began there were some sound issues they couldn't hear